Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 15. Still Australia's side of halfway. This is Cannon. Brennan Cannon, great charge up the middle of the run. Well, for the All Blacks, it's a long, long four years till the next opportunity to play in a World Cup. Major lost it. Australia determined to keep its line intact. The referee looks at the clock. He blows his whistle. And the Wallabies are the first team in history to qualify for three Rugby World Cup finals. My guest on today's show is Brendan Cannon. Brendan played 47 test matches for Australia, including at the business end of the 2003 World Cup. The memorable win over the Kiwis in the semi followed by the heartbreaking loss to Johnny Wilkinson and the English in the final. But that, of course, is but a fraction of the Brendan Cannon story. As is usually the case when I meet my guests for the show, I really didn't know what to expect when I met Brendan. But I knew he'd played 10 years of professional rugby, so at the very least, I'd be in for a good chat about sport. I had no idea I was meeting a man who was so thoughtful about the interconnected nature of life experiences. He's so articulate, generous with his time, and mindful of the fascination some of us have with the inner workings of high-profile professional sport. But, and you'll hear this a few times, he's a very humble guy, almost shy about the fact that for a period of time, he was a highly recognised sportsman. There's so much more to Brendan Cannon than a high-level rugby career. In our chat, he tells us about the perspective a serious near-death car accident gave him as a 19-year-old. He talks us through the changing values of the rugby scene as, during his career, it transitioned from completely amateur to quasi-professional to the glitz and glamour era of highly paid professionals. He tells us about the anxiety he felt during his career, vividly aware that it would not last forever, unsure about what life would lead to when he eventually hung up his boots, devoid of the professional experience others of his age had already accrued. The conversation you're about to hear is not simply a chat about rugby with a former Wallaby. There's plenty of that if you're a rugby fan. But the real value comes from Brendan's candid insights into the life he's led so far, the lessons he's learned along the way, how he's applying them in his corporate career, and in life in general. And on top of all that, Brendan Cannon is quite simply a man born to be interviewed. For starters, he's got an amazing radio voice, and he has an incredible ability to tell stories and answer questions with depth and insight. I think I've talked up this interview quite enough. I'll get out of the way so you can listen for yourself. Brendan, thanks for coming on the show. Not a problem. Good to be here. There are so many questions I have for you today about your experiences through your playing career in international and super rugby, about the time you worked in television media and the professional career you've carved out since departing the rugby scene. I'm really looking forward to hearing about the lessons you've learned about yourself, about life and leadership along the way. But I'd really like to start at the beginning about your early playing days as a as a young rugby player. 
I spent a lifetime as a youngster playing team sport. I loved it. I was immersed, obsessed with it. But no one that I ever played with ever played for Queensland or New South Wales or Australia. Okay. And I played with thousands of people along the way. So now when I look on TV and I see those guys running out in, in those jerseys, I yep. think as a youngster, you must have been a really special athlete, a really <laughs> special player. And I noticed that, and we'll talk about your, your international career later, but yeah. even as a youngster, you had a name. I spoke to Pat Howard uh, in one of my very early okay. episodes, and he laments, still laments the fact that in the first 15, they didn't win the TAS title. No. He said to me, and I quote, Brendan Cannon's St. Laurie's won that. <laughs> you played under 19 and under 21 for Australia. Mm -hmm. Were you always a cut above the rest? You never. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very uh, overinflated start, but um, <laughs> it gives us something to work with. <laughs> um, I was always fortunate that I enjoyed playing rugby and I enjoyed the element of rugby that it was a team sport. I feel sorry for individual athletes and they have a team behind them, but it's it's a very... Um, shadowy team because they're not at the at the forefront of what the athlete's doing and they don't really get to share in the I suppose the trials and tribulations of being in a team and so I enjoyed that journey of that collaborative approach and all through school and all through you know, my rugby career I always enjoyed playing you know in that wider team and I think as time went on when we finished school uh, I was enjoying rugby so much that I was still able to get you know into representative teams and you know, I, I suppose if you had to have ability um, that was probably slightly different to the rest of people to be to be recognised, and then when you get put into a team of high performers, you realise that you know as as good as you thought you were, you actually weren't that weren't that good because there were people there with even greater ability than what you know greater skill sets than what you had. So, I think through school I was very fortunate that I enjoyed what I did. I did get recognised that I had an ability. Uh, and also a, a good enthusiasm for football. And I think that just gives you a bit of a momentum uh, to continue to pursue it. When I finished school, a really core group of mates, we went on to play club football at South. And every year after we finished Colts, less and less of those guys continued to play. And within a matter of four years of us having finished school, I was the only guy still playing. And I was only playing because I was enjoying it still and, and my mates had played because of they wanted to play with their mates but I was also playing because I was enjoying it so much and I was starting to get some traction and I had always harboured that desire to, as any, as any junior or boy or girl wants, is to represent your country and that was something that was driving me to continue my pursuit of rugby post-school. When did you get your first sniff that maybe this is a real possibility? I might really wear that red jersey one day or maybe even the gold one. Yeah, I, I think – so you can't play for – well, you can play schoolboys for uh, Australia. I didn't make the Australian schoolboy team in my year. It was an amazing side. They had Pat Howard, Dan Herbert, Matty Burke. Uh, there was – I think out of that schoolboy side, there would have been probably 15 players went on to play for the Wallabies. And I didn't make that schoolboy side that year, which – was disappointing because I was Queensland Schoolboy Player of the Year that year, and a lot of people probably just assumed that I would be an automatic selection, and and maybe in some way I I may have also probably fallen into that trap that I probably just had to do a little bit and I'd be okay. And so when I didn't make it, and I actually thought I'd had a reasonable Schoolboys Championship. When I didn't make it, it actually it did it did hurt that I wasn't recognised or able to go on and, pre and represent my country at under 17s at school. 
when a lot of people were telling me all year that I was going to. And then it wasn't until I played Australian under-19s and, you know, pulled on my, you know, the country's colours for the first time that I suppose your capacity as a player grows and your belief uh, in, in your own ability starts to get a real tickle and you start to think, this is slightly addictive and I want to I do this more and more. And I think, you know, you go to sporting events, you go to cultural events, you get to stand up and you get to sing your national anthem. But there's something significantly different and it has to be different that when you stand there with your country's colours on and you stand there with a select group of people that are acknowledged as being the best in their position, that's addictive. And what was your first game for Australia at under-19 level? Uh, we played the junior, the junior All Blacks, always the old, uh, the old enemy across the Dutch. And, um, you know, so for me, I was living my own junior, I suppose, trans-Tasman rivalry. You know, we've all grown up on state of origin, NRL grand finals, um, test matches and Bledisloe Cup test matches. And I remember at school, the test matches back then, there was no nighttime rugby. TV's changed all the sporting uh, presentations where... It's now all, all on in the evenings, very few afternoon games. And the games that were played in New Zealand were two or three hours ahead of Australia. So the game would always start at 12 or quarter past 12. And I remember being at home, getting ready to go play schoolboy football that afternoon and always pleading with Dad for us to stay and watch the first 25, 30 minutes of, of the Test match. And so I grew up in a very strong rugby family. My father, my grandfather had all played. And I think, you know... My introduction to rugby was through my father's passion and my boys are playing rugby. Um, it wouldn't bother me if they played any other sport, but I'm happy that I'm probably more content they're playing rugby than something else. And so growing up, watching these all-black tests and then realising that I was in my own little all-black test against, against them, there was something really invigorating and exciting about that and it was everything and more that I expected it to be. I bet it was. Now, out of interest, who was the hooker in that Australian schoolboys side? Oh, wow. Um, I called Tommy Morrison was the hooker and Anton Oliver, who was a future all-black captain, was the hooker in the New Zealand side. So, you know, that, the all-black side was full of superstars that, you know, would, would go on and make a name for themselves as very, very good all-blacks. And uh, I, was, I wasn't a hooker uh, in under-19. I was in a different position, but um, I was a back rower. And so it was interesting to uh, progress into the national team in a very different position to what I'd represented Australia and a junior team in. You were. I, I didn't know that. That didn't come out in my Google <laughs> research of you. So you went to Souths, the, the mm -hmm. club in Brisbane that produces Wallabies, and you made your debut for Queensland as a relatively young man, especially for those times when players were still expected to cut their teeth in club rugby, mm. and even more especially because of your position in the front row. Were you ready for interstate rugby? No. No, I wasn't. I played for Queensland as a hooker at 20 years of age, and you know, I look back at that, and it's almost like picking a preschooler to go and have, have lunchtime sports with the grade 12s. It was a huge jump, and one that I think... Over time, you know, we've all got backers and supporters of us in business and in life. And I had people that believed in me and obviously were ready to back them, back me into a position with the Queensland team. But I myself was probably very naive to think, yeah, I was ready when I really was probably very green because I'd only transferred to become a hooker or changed to try and adapt to become a hooker probably 18 months earlier. And what preceded my debut for Queensland was probably the most... Um, well, at, up until that point in my life, the most 
you know, challenging period where I'd had a very serious car accident. And, you know, rugby up until the car accident had been what I thought was going to be my identification, my, my lifetime label that I was going to make a mark as a rugby player and, you know, um, fulfil my dreams or aspirations doing that. And when I had the car accident and I couldn't play rugby for a period of time, I, I nearly was killed in the car accident and had you know physical injuries that potentially could have jeopardised my return as, as an athlete. At 20 years of age or 19 years of age, 17th of February 1993, I got given a lesson in life that you can't go to the library or read Google, that I had to experience it for myself. So my whole value proposition on what I wanted out of life changed and rugby up until that point had been a very significant uh, influencer and then post that it was more of an outlet. And so what I like about what I've been able to achieve with rugby is that I've done it on a whole different value proposition but still combining elements of what I had preceding the car accident in 1993. I never thought that I'd get to play for the Wallabies even when I was fully fit before I had the car accident. And then when I had the car accident, rugby was so far removed from my whole you know, position of what I wanted to do. It was just day-to-day living and sort of just general functionality. So interesting that when I was 20, 12 months after the accident, I got picked to play for Queensland. So if someone comes and says to you, here's a jersey, do you want to wear it? Very few people probably are brave enough to say, I'm not ready. I didn't think that I wasn't ready, but it wasn't until I got exposed into that environment, started hanging out with guys that had won the 1991 World Cup uh, you know, three or four years earlier. Really did I then start to think, I'm a little bit maybe out of my depth, but I'm, I'm a quick learner. <laughs> I'm a really quick learner. I'm going to have to be because I'm playing with guys that were world-class players and like World 15 standard. And my, my growth as a rugby player was accelerated. You know, and if you want to be a performer and if you, if, you, if, if you get involved with people that are better than you, you know, the smartest CEOs are the ones that hire people that are smarter than them because a collaborative team that is full of high achievers, we all drive each other to become better. So my growth as a rugby player um, was phenomenally accelerated. Like it took steroids for three or four years, legal steroids, because of the stimulation and the exposure. I got to like a wide diversity of skill sets. I got to see how world-class players prepared for games. Um, everyone was very different and that's what I liked about rugby but then also how they managed to switch off away from sport and have a normal life. And um, yeah, it was amazing. So looking back on it, hindsight, everyone's ne- nearest and dearest best friend makes me think I probably was very green. I, um, you know, but uh, if, if, if other people hadn't have believed in me, you don't know when that opportunity would have come. So I took that jersey and, um, and everything since, since then has been a, a dream come true. Would have been an incredible experience for you as a young man to walk into that change room with, as you say, a whole bunch of guys who'd won the 1991 World Cup. But having said that, the rugby scene was a bit different in those days because at Souths, you would have been going to training with Wallabies because Wallabies still played for their club quite a bit back in those days. So it might not have been such an awakening experience for you then as it would be for a young man now making his first trip to the Queensland Reds. Yeah, that's true. And I was old enough that in 1994... Rugby was still amateur, and two years after I'd played for Queensland, so 1996, it became professional. And I liked the first two to three years of professional rugby because it was quasi-professional. You know, you still had an ability to go away and have an income away from rugby, or you could just do rugby on its own. And you know, there's something we can talk about later is the evolution of 
of my career from an amateur to a, to a semi-professional to a full-time professional and how much I struggled with the full-time professionalism at the back end because I lamented what I had been exposed to at the very beginning of my career and I felt that they'd gone so far to the other side in terms of, you know, I suppose, work-life balance and you know, being so uh, focused on wanting to make sure rugby was everything that I felt, I wouldn't say I got bitter, but I was just very challenged on a daily basis of the environment that I was existing in as a 34, 35-year-old player when 15 years earlier I felt that everything was perfect from a rugby perspective. So but we can talk about that Talk about that a bit later. We, we will. I have got that scribbled down here as one of my questions to ask you. Before we move on, one of the questions I wasn't going to ask you, but seeing you mention it, we sit here and the, uh, the story bridge is, is over your shoulder and that is, of course, where you did have that, that horrific car accident back in '93. You support a very impressive scar, a scar befitting a man who put his head in scrums for 20 years, but <laughs> got... <laughs> it's actually only loosely related to scrums, isn't it? Exactly. It, it caused a lot, of, uh, a lot of frustration amongst many other front rowers where they had to put their head in a thousand awkward spaces to, to par- partially look like they do. <laughs> and mine happened, unfortunately, in one incident, and I, was, I looked like a front rower straight away. So, yes, the scar in the middle of my forehead, which over time has eased, uh, is a fairly prominent one, and it, it's a legacy item from the car accident. Do most people assume it's from rugby? Everyone assumes it's from rugby, and everyone assumes that everything that's happened to me is from rugby, but the most injuries I sustained, I have sustained in my life have all been from the car accident. And the other ones, while still significant, yeah, fail and, fail and small in comparison to the car accident. As a Brisbaneite, we can't avoid the story bridge. Does it bring any memories for you these days, or do you drive over it thoughtlessly? No, no, you couldn't have an incident like that where I was trapped in the car for an hour and a half. It was a small little Ford Festiva, you know, and then having two, two to three weeks in hospital. And you can't have an incident like that and not be affected by it. And, you know, the trauma associated with it and the subsequent recovery, you know, was a really interesting and obviously it should have been a very interesting experience for me and for others close to me. What I went and did after the accident was I went and saw the emergency, the emergency crew, so the fire trucks and the ambulance guys that worked together as a team, as a, you know, as a, as a combined team within small teams to allow the medical guys to maintain my health or a, st- a stability about my health whilst I was trapped in the car. And then the fire guys had to work around the ambulance officers to still try and do what they could. And I got told that the longer you're in the car, the less likely it is that you know, you're obviously going to survive because, you know, the longer you are away from proper medical care. So it was 90 minutes I was trapped in the car. That's, that's a long time to be sitting still in any sense. And I was trapped by the driving wheel or the steering wheel that had come back from the impact where I'd been pushed into the path of the truck that I hit. So I made a special... And for me, it was very interesting where I had no recollection of the accident, but everyone else was telling me, you know, the accident and how lucky I was because it had been on the media, on the TV and in the paper. So I went and saw the ambulance and the firemen afterwards and it was something that I wanted to do because for them, or for me to them, I wanted to thank them and I wanted them to, I suppose, I also wanted to hear their story as to what they saw and how the morning transpired and it was really interesting um, and it showed to me then that no matter what happens in life, no matter who we see working or what they're doing, some people take for granted that people just do that because that's what they're paid to do. And there was one guy who'd been a fireman for 25 years and he said, 
you can't underestimate how much it means to us to have someone come back and say thank you because he said what happens to us is we go to a scene we see the worst he said and, and then we the people disappear in an ambulance or go away and he said we never know what happens we never know what the outcome is he said so there's all these lingering questions that we know that the job we were there to do we did but we never know what the end result ends up being so he said for you to come back it completes the picture for me whereas we saw you going off in an ambulance he said we read about it that you were recovering but he said we didn't know what happened after that so he said thank you so much he said it's like it's better than winning the lotto i was thinking that as you were telling the story that that would have been special for them and, and i imagine that very few people would would do that and that's the sad thing is that we probably all all assume on a day-to-day basis a lot of the people that do community type roles the policemen the nurses the doctors anyone in a volunteer organization they they do it because they want to some do it because they have to but just to acknowledge and appreciate and show that to them means something means more to them than probably anyone could ever estimate you're listening to the team guru podcast bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership so your time at the Queensland Reds, you only had one coach, if my research is yeah, correct. That's true. John Connolly, a long-time Queensland coach. Yes. What are your memories of him as a coach and as a leader? Um, well, so John Connolly's nickname is Knuckles. So you don't get your nickname Knuckles for being a soft, a soft man with a soft approach. He, um, you know, I was very fortunate to have Knuckles as my Queensland coach because he was a great supporter of mine, obviously. Um, and also the Queensland side at that time had just a golden era of players. It was John Eels and Tim Horan, Jason Little, Michael Liner, Peter Slattery, Sam Scott Young. Like you know, If you follow rugby, they're names that readily resonate with you know, representative rugby in Queensland. And so Knuckles was, we used to call him the chief of mind games because he was always the manipulator of basically saying, you're doing really well, you're close enough. But he'd say that to your opposite number as well within the squad. So he was never letting you ever get comfortable. He was never, ever letting you feel complacent, but he was always, you know, I suppose, trying to motivate you but, but manipulate you to make you, you know, I suppose, get the best out of you. And the challenge you have as a rugby coach is that you literally are the CEO of the organisation, which is the team, but you're also the head of HR, the HR department because you've got to manage with, on any given week when the team is picked, there's 15 workers that are happy. Game day rugby has 23 players, so 15 workers are happy, seven are reasonably happy. But the training squad of 30 players, you've then got to deal with seven players who want to lodge complaints to the CEO of the organisation about why they feel like they're not getting the right deal. So managing the different personalities and managing expectations and managing disappointment is a really important thing for a successful coach. And good coaches, and you see them because... Everyone looks from the outside and are, are envious of the team and the culture that they're able to um, maintain and also um, keep consistency with performance. The good coaches are the ones that stand out. And you know, to name a couple, John Connolly was very good at that. Wayne Bennett is clearly good at that. Um, Alex Clarkson in AFL for the Hawks is exceptionally good at that. Um, you know, John Warsford from the West Coast Eagles. Guys that have been coaches for a long time you know, aren't just there because... They were good players. Some of them have never played at the representative level, but they're good, they're excellent because they know how to balance the whole package of being a coach. And so John Connolly, in an amateur era, crossed over into professionalism. And so he, like all of us, was really 
troubled or challenged at the evolution from amateur to semi-professional to then professional football. And you know, it was an interesting time, a very interesting time to be a part of it. In 1994, I didn't truly appreciate the magnitude of being in this place, but we went to South Africa twice. The first time we were there were the elections, or you know, um, leading up to the elections for uh, Nelson Mandela's inauguration as president. So Nelson Mandela was running as a, as a candidate. The next time we went back, in between the first trip to the, to, the, to the last trip, the election had been held, Nelson Mandela had been you know, elected as president, so we were in that country at the time he got inaugurated as president. You know, History-making stuff. And the beauty of rugby was that you ended up going to magnificent parts of the world, meeting different cultures, seeing different people. And it going from amateur to professional football was a really interesting time to be a part of it. And John Connolly, like all of us, was probably challenged by having to work full-time one week and then the next week when it went professional, all he had to do was focus on rugby. And some did it better than others, but you know, John Connolly was a successful Queensland coach and you know, you've got good reasons for that. What, what are those challenges? From an outsider's point of view, it seems like it would be fantastic to, to not have to work part-time and coach the Reds or work part-time and, and be a player and train really hard and, and then try and fit it all in. I, I can't imagine what the downsides would have been to that transition from completely amateur to semi and then completely professional. Well, the, well, the downside is that I think beforehand, you know, rugby was a recreational sport, so everyone had to have another interest and a paid interest to survive and then when you take that away from people and you say to them I'm going to give you a check each month because all you have to do is this and this alone I think it brings a little bit of complacency to it and I think if we've got diversity in in how we go about challenging ourselves as individuals it keeps you stimulated and yes there's multiple benefits from being a professional sportsman there's multiple benefits from being able to focus solely and purely on one thing but sport isn't a lifetime it doesn't last forever and the issue that I have with you know seeing how professional sportsmen these days come out and go about doing things is that it doesn't allow them to have a balance outside of sport it doesn't allow them to appreciate the the trials and tribulations of real life that everyone else that pays for tickets and season tickets to go and watch them play or look at when I was playing professional rugby all my mates were saying to me you are living the dream like, mate, how good is your life? What they didn't know is that in my mind, I was happy with what I was doing, but I also was developing, in some ways, insecurities about what I was going to do when I finished football because I knew football doesn't last forever. So whilst I managed to have a successful career and uh, challenge myself on a number of levels, I retired at 35 years of age. So if I hadn't have developed other interests away from football and tertiary qualified and you know tried to equip myself with the toolkit of life for transition to walk out of sporting clothes into a corporate world I would have been chronologically a 70 a 35 year old guy but with the skill set of a 17 year old because I'd done nothing I hadn't equipped myself with any practical exposure into anything work-wise so I've genuine concerns for young players now that just do sport and sport alone because I think it creates a naivety amongst them that it's like the Truman Show. They're in a massive bubble and they, they skim through life getting a large wad of money every month. Everything you want's given to you. You don't have to really persevere for too much. You get treated very differently. You get put onto a red carpet and you, get, and you float around for a period of time. But 
when you retire, <laughs> the red carpet quickly disappears. A lot, a lot of the backslappers that are all swanning around, party little posse group, they all disappear. And so I tried to always work because of my amateur exposure for two to three years. So I felt that I had a reasonable balance. I also felt that I had a reasonable expectation of what life would be like when footy finished. But it didn't alleviate the fears that I had when I saw all my mates progressing their corporate careers and I knew corp, you know, their careers, they were building careers for a life. I'd played for my country and managed to do that a number of times, but it was also going to end at some point. And so my life, as I see it, has had two stages to it. I've exceeded in, in a sporting sense, which has been very fulfilling and very humbling. I was able to do that. But then my next challenge is how I can achieve satisfaction and stimulation in a corporate sense. I, I had a wonderful conversation in episode eight, I think, of my podcast series with a guy called Michael Blucher. Do you know Michael? Michael Bluch. Bluch was the media and communications uh, manager when rugby went from amateur to professionalism with the Reds. He wrote a fantastic book called Bubble Boys. We had a, a really great chat about that and it's so interesting. I knew we'd come across this as a topic today. It's so interesting to hear you talk about the fact that you were really aware of the fact that your career would end at some point. I mean, it's obvious, but clearly some guys aren't aware. And perhaps it's just part of your nature or perhaps it's because of your, the exact age where you experienced the amateur era and then the development to full-time professionalism. It's funny when we, we look at professional sports now, the major codes in Australia make a really big deal about the fact that, especially with the young guys, they insist that they do something outside of football. It's almost gone full circle, hasn't it? Because that's exactly what you used to do out of pure necessity. You did something outside of football. Michael talks about the three categories of former players. There are, there are former players who are still a former player. They sit in a bar and talk about the days when <laughs> I used to. There, there are guys who, who haven't gotten over it. They're upset about what they're missing out on now. And then there are guys who have just completely moved on. And when I was in my 20s, I played a bit of rugby and it happened to be for Australia. Where do you fit in that category? Oh, <laughs> if, you, if you came to my house... Um I have very little rugby memorabilia out. Um, I, have a, I have a very large collection of rugby memorabilia at my parents' place in what you would probably call the pool room. Um, but in, in, my, in my presence, and this was another thing that I probably found really difficult, and I'll try and explain it. When I finished rugby, people had always only ever seen me that didn't know me, that ever only seen me on TV or seen me doing the um, interviews and stuff and saw me play. So you watch a sportsman, you see them for that period of time and you, and you bring a judgment on who that person is. How we are as performers to how we are as individuals is fundamentally different. So when I finished um, my sporting career and was trying to embark upon a corporate career, I found it really difficult and it took me a little while to appreciate because everyone that I met wanted to talk about well, who I used to be. No one wanted to talk about who I wanted to become. And so I was personally really torn as to, and I started to get a little bit agitated at times as to, frustrated within myself as to, I don't want to talk about who I used to be. I want to talk about here and now. Who I used to be doesn't matter anymore. And then I started to appreciate the leveraging component of, well, who I used to be to them mattered a little because they watched and they followed rugby. And if I entertained engaging with them on my past, it at least allowed me to transition smoother into maintaining relevance for my future. And so once I got my head around that, that, that got better. 
but I'm not someone that I, w- I would definitely probably be, I think, category one, which is someone that if someone wants to talk to me about football, I'll acknowledge it, I'll entertain it. It's not a badge or an ID card that I hand out when I go out. I actually quite like meeting other people, other sportsmen who I know, but they don't tell me you know, what they used to do. It's for me to engage with them to talk about who or what they used to become or used to, used to be. So if someone stumbles upon my past and then brings it up, happy to talk about it, but it's certainly not on the CV that I throw out, out and about or on the cards that you leave, you know, leave around town. This is such an interesting position that you're in and you obviously understand that for the rest of us, us, us guys and girls who are fans of sport, we don't meet a former Wallaby every day. So it's quite interesting for us. But for you, you, as you say, you've retired to something. You're, you're doing something in the future. You haven't retired from rugby. You've retired to a corporate career and that's what you want to talk about in your life after rugby, even outside of work. Yeah, and what was interesting was when I finished football, um, the year I retired, I retired in 2006, and John Mitchell, the coach of the Western Force at the time, former All Black coach, he offered me a job to be the assistant forwards coach for the next year. And I respect former sportsmen and athletes that go back into and contribute in their, in their chosen sport. But for me, and this is my view, and it's not everyone else's view, but my view was that that, that for me would have been too comfortable because it was exactly what I'd grown up on. I was 35 when I retired. I'd played rugby for 30 years. And I wanted to challenge myself. And yet, if I had gone back into comfortable position by being a coach with rugby, um, I don't, as a person, feel like I ever would have, ever really would have been satisfied. It would have been a really easy existence because I would have known exactly what I could and couldn't do, who was who in the zoo type thing. But I wanted to challenge myself. And I was very determined and still am to achieve something away from what I'd already achieved. And, and that's the hardest thing. As a player or as an athlete, it's addictive. You know, that high level and executed performance and being able to challenge yourself. Um, and you don't focus on the fact that you play in big stadiums and you get to be on TV and all that stuff. All that stuff's so periphery to it. You love to challenge yourself against the best. And I think what I found and have found difficult is by being able to find something that substitute that can substitute or even get close to substituting what I felt when I was able to achieve on a week-to-week basis playing for the Wallabies. I've probably come to terms with the fact that there probably will never ever be that level of satisfaction because you can't replicate that. I have harboured desires to try and get into a team post-football that made me feel like I did when I played football. But I've also had to adjust my expectations where the term, the term team in corporate sense is, is a label and there are, there are multiple facets to it that corporates don't get on what a sporting team is about. And rugby for me was such a beautiful sport that it was, and I often say it was non-discriminatory, it catered for all shapes and sizes of a variety of skill sets. Um, but what I appreciated that rugby gave me was that it was a collaborative approach to an end journey, which was an outcome. And so all the different aspects of rugby, the scrum, the line-out, the passing, the kicking, if all of that worked out well and you'd done your homework on the opposition and you managed to score a try or beat them at the end, that was a shared journey as a group. What I have found really difficult, and I still do and probably will uh, for the rest of my working life, is how loosely the word team gets thrown about and how people in a corporate sense say we are a team and yet they can't see that you have sensitivity to it 
but you see too many individuals operating within corporate teams saying we are part of a team. And you know, there, there are many adjustments that I've had to make from challenging myself to try and satisfying myself. I think I'm getting better at it, but it was something that was significantly difficult for me to feel like, oh, well, I'll never ever get to feel like that again. As long as I've come to terms with the fact that, well, you shouldn't because that was quite, quite an experience. If I can find something that at least invigorates me and challenges me, then I think that's as good as I'm going to get. Let's go there. I, I really want to talk about this. When you came into the corporate world and you heard people talking about being in a team and, and in some cases that must have seemed laughable to you as someone who'd played professional sport and really had been part of a, of a high-performing team, what don't we get in the corporate world about team? <laughs> we don't have enough time. It's, um, I think what I learned through my sporting career was... And, it's, and it trans, transfers into any, any environment that you, that you work in or you're exposed to is you don't have to be best friends. You don't have to go to barbecues on a Sunday and catch up for dinners on a Wednesday. And if you don't, well, then you, know, you don't get on with the team. What I learnt through sport and what I'm, I've also tried to influence the guys I work with is that if we respect each other and if we respect the skill set that we bring to work on a daily basis and if that person that you're working with or playing with brings that skill set and, and delivers it, that's all that you can ask of them. But if they have different values or beliefs as a person to you, that's their position. You don't have to be their friend. But I respected every guy I played with who brought their attitude to training, brought their skill set, but then even better, delivered on the big stage on a Saturday night for 80 minutes. What I have found hard in the corporate sense is Everyone has this belief that you have to try and be very social with each other. There are many guys that are not many. There are a number of guys that I played with that I didn't care if I didn't see socially, because they weren't my cup of tea. You know, some were just completely different gravy. But would I have played with anyone else? No, because I respected what those guys individually added to the group, but then also collectively added to us as a team. And I try and say to our guys that I work with here and everywhere else that I've worked is if you, if you respect people, you have to also acknowledge the contribution that they make. You know? And corporately, everything's so focused on the bottom line. If you achieve a goal as a group or as a team, why not take time to celebrate your victories? You know, the victories in the, in the working sense get passed over so quickly um, and there's been such a build-up to get to that point What's wrong with taking time to celebrate the victory, you know, if you want to use a sporting term, if you achieve budget or if you pull off a big bid with a major client and it's going to change the organisation? What's wrong with acknowledging that and what's wrong with also acknowledging people that contributed to that being the successful outcome? Because I often say as a, a team and leadership consultant that one of the things, one of the many things we can learn from professional sport is that they're really good at celebrating a victory and we could be better at that in the corporate world However, sometimes in the corporate world, it's more difficult to identify when you've had a victory. When you were playing for the Wallabies, you knew when you had a victory. True. The siren went and you looked at the scoreboard and if you had more points than they did, that's True. a victory. Yeah. So is it a case that it's just more difficult to identify them because we haven't clarified our team goals or do we let opportunities slip by? I think everyone's so focused on, it's probably a, a combination of those and then also everyone's so driven to the bottom line and so outcome focused from a financial perspective for an organisation that, you know, 
it, it evolved so quickly that you don't have the season as in a sporting sense that you've got clearly defined you know, t weekly targets that you have to achieve. Probably in, in, in a work sense you do, but you probably don't get too much time to sit back and, and, and you know, smell the roses per se. But what I, what I have seen in places where I've worked is, and I've worked up in Papua New Guinea, and you know, they are completely different people, completely different country, but they taught me a number of key lessons where they live for today and they don't think about tomorrow. So if I, if I gave them a lot of money um, from, a, from a, a work sense, they'd probably go and spend it all today because the concept of tomorrow hasn't arrived yet for them. They don't think about the past, they only think about the here and now. They have a very simple value proposition and everything for them is all about family. And, and for me, in a working sense, you have to think about the future, but you also have to focus on the here and now. And if you can't celebrate your victories as they occur, and if you don't take time to stop and acknowledge that you've achieved something, well, then what are you trying to achieve? Because in a team sense, you want to be appreciated and you want to at least have your collective contribution acknowledged. And if people aren't appreciated, then people will gradually over time start to lose interest in what you're trying to do as a team. And they won't buy into, we're all in this together, because you're not. Because only someone at the top's getting the bonus and the people down below aren't getting acknowledged by saying, we all as a group achieved this. So. I worked as a general manager for Digicel in Papua New Guinea and Digicel's a mobile phone company and a lot of foreigners that go to New Guinea probably take liberty with the local people who are beautiful people, they're, they're shy, they're timid and have had their country changed in some ways for the better, some ways for the worse with the foreign investment that's gone in. But I had a very firm view that, and I used to say this to all the staff, that I was a visitor to their country. It was not my home, it was their home. And whenever you go to someone else's home you have to respect their their castle and their their, you know, their place where they live and I, I treated everyone in that office the same from the cleaner to the girl who worked on the front desk to the guy who was my salesman and I tried to talk to each of them every day at least acknowledge that I, they were there um, stopped to speak to them find out a bit more about who they were as a person their family their children all that type of stuff because I wanted to make them feel like I, I um, get stimulated by and get more productive in an environment if I feel I'm being appreciated. And for me, for them, it worked out exceptionally well where that little little different approach was so different to some of the other expat bosses or managers that they'd had. I still had to be, still had to be firm at times. I couldn't be always Mr. Nice Guy, but it allowed me to be man more manageable when I had to be firm uh, rather than just being seen as the bad guy all the time. So I think in, what I'm trying to say is in any environment, if, if you all feel like your contribution's being appreciated, well, then you can collectively come together and produce an outcome. But you don't have to be best friends. So as long as you respect one another and respect that everyone brings different skill sets to work every day, but no one's skill set is far greater or better than the other because without all of it combined, it doesn't matter who's good at what, you're not going to achieve anything. But if you put it all together and you mix it all up and it finds a balance, then the outcome is, is unlimited. I found it so interesting when you talked about the fact that in your playing days, there were some guys on the field who just weren't your cup of tea as a person, but you wouldn't have wanted to play with anyone else. That makes perfect sense rationally. But 
for a, a fan, we see when a try is scored, you run and hug each other and pat each other on the backside and you all look like best of mates. It's, it's hard to imagine that that's going on beyond the, behind the scenes, but it's obviously a very mature approach because you don't have to like who you're working with. As you say, you just have to respect what they bring to the team. Do you think in a corporate sense sometimes we clutch at straws when we have these work functions where we get together and go-kart race or we have a barbecue or we have drinks because we're just trying to create this atmosphere where we all get on as a pale imitation for actually just respecting each other as professionals? Oh, <laughs> I think you can see when you, when you work in a place, those that have played sport in, in team sports and you also then get to see others that probably haven't had much sporting exposure – and there's no right or wrong way, but there's a way of, of being adaptable to try and help everyone um, work towards, I suppose, a, a position of, of comfort for everyone. Um, no one likes to be dictated to. No one likes to be given an order to say, this is how it's going to be. I think if you feel that as a group you're starting to have a voice that's being heard and your opinions and your skill sets are respected and, and appreciated, then the momentum of that team will build. And you only have to look at teams within teams or in an organisation where someone will say, what is it about Tommy Smith's team? They just seem to be so much better than everyone else. There's not one clear definable component of that where you can sit there and go, that's it. It's how they all as a group have made adjustments in their level of expect expectation of each other, adjustments in their respect and appreciation of what they as a group do. And there's no magic formula there's no single one defining moment where you can say that's when it changed. They all had to change to effectively produce the outcome that is being acknowledged. And I think the social outings and all that stuff are fantastic and you do get to see people in very different lights, particularly when you go to functions and there is alcohol involved. You know, in wine there is truth. Well, that's revealed, you know, where you see someone's personality socially to professionally are always very different. And I always enjoyed meeting you know, as it, with the Wallabies, you got to go to a lot of corporate functions. And so I got to meet a lot of my mates that were working corporately. They're big, big bosses, you know, CEOs of publicly listed companies and executive chairmen and those type guys. I only ever saw them socially. I never saw them professionally. I knew who they were professionally. I read about them professionally. And I imagine those people were very different in both. And so you should be because you can't sustain intensity and Professionally, you have to be a particular way, but away from work, it's where you get to you know, have an outlet to relax and enjoy yourself. So doing those activities is always fraught with a little bit of danger, but you do get to clearly see who's who within the zoo, you know, who's the dominant personality, who's the meeker and milder one that's going to sit back and follow, you know, who's the voice, who's got the loudest uh, voice that wants to be heard but has well, the, the biggest lack of substance that they bring to the table. I, I love the... <laughs> I love seeing the diversity of, of, a, of a profile personality of, of a group of staff when you see them get together. And the longer the night goes on, that just gets exaggerated more and more. They revert to type, it's, become almost caricatures of themselves. It's, it's like they're all on stage and they're playing their own part in it without even knowing. It's, it's really quite amusing when you look back at it. But, you know, it, it's an evolving circumstance where over time, thing, you know, some people are really big on change. And other people don't like change. Other people, you know, my, my father came from the generation, he's 68, my father, and still in good health. But he worked for one company for 34 years. 
So he doesn't understand how people these days, every two to three years, like Gen Y do, chop and change businesses because for Gen Y now, it's all about being challenged. And that really, it's not about they're, they're not being loyal. It's just them wanting to do something different because they're bored. 34 years with the one company. My parents have lived in the same house, the only house they've ever owned. Dad got a company car for those 34 years. It was white or silver. So you see, what worked for my father was a very simple existence. What doesn't work for him is me changing, having changed jobs or my brother changing jobs or other people changing jobs. Uh, he doesn't understand that because that was the generation that he came from. There were four gentlemen of a similar age that collectively had nearly 200 years experience with the company. Like it's unimaginable. It is unimaginable. You know? So I, I, I like I like the way in which where I am now from a corporate perspective because it's a dynamic team. Uh, so I work for CBRE in commercial real estate in Brisbane and it's a dynamic team. We have a big spread. We have someone near, someone up near as young as 50 years of age all the way down to 22 years of age. And seeing how that age group interacts and works with each other, there's always, there's many more pricklier moments than there are smoother moments because in, in what I do, it's very much performance-based and so we're constantly trying to challenge each other but it's just constantly trying to find that balance and we are always evolving as a team and we do celebrate our victories, which is what I like. Brennan, if commercial real estate loses interest for you at some point, you <laughs> should do what I do. You're a fantastic team consultant in, in waiting. <laughs> you are very good at talking about this kind of stuff. And there's a million questions that have dropped out of my mind as you've talked because you've been saying so many really interesting things. I want to go way back though and ask you a, a really superficial question that you'll probably hate you were talking about how people want to talk to you about rugby all the time. How recognised are you these days? You've, <laughs> you've been out of the scene for a while. Do you get hassled much? Do you walk down the street and, and, a, and, a, and a yobbo calls out, hey, Cannon, you know, blah, 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 about the World Cup, you lost to Johnny Wilkinson. Do you, do you get much of that these days? Or <laughs> how often do you meet someone who's got no idea about your past? Well, that's getting more and more these days. Um, I think what has probably contributed to me post-career Maybe, maybe dollars a little bit more than what I what I thought I would was I I transitioned into a part time career with Fox Sports doing the rugby coverage and and so if unless you had Fox you never you never saw me on TV uh, and not that anyone would want to pay to see me on TV it's a very awkward question this one <laughs> um, but but depending on where you would go if you went to a rugby event you know everyone would not everyone but a, a larger portion of people would would recognise you. I remember I found it really sweet. I've got three beautiful children, Joey's 10, Phoebe's 8 and Sam's 6. And so I would take them to a test match here in Brisbane and the three of them would all be there in our wallaby gear and supporter scarves and we'd, we'd be walking through the crowd at Suncorp Stadium and you know, maybe six out of eight people would say, G'day Cano, g'day Brendan, how are you? And, and the kids in their pure innocence would say, Dad, how, how do these people, do you know all these people? I said, no, I don't. And my youngest one, Sam, said, well, if you don't know them, why are they saying hello to you? And I said, well, they used to obviously watch rugby and they knew that Daddy played. And then Joe, my eldest, goes, but why are they saying hello to you? I said, well, I, I don't know, but they just wanted to say hello. So it's worked out okay. But it's interesting to see them see how complete strangers come up and how they interpret that. And sometimes they get a little bit uncomfortable with it, thinking, why is that person who my dad doesn't know wanting to talk to him? Tian Strauss, who I played with with the Waratahs, he was a captain of the Springboks. He came to Australia under the Super League era and played for the Cronulla Sharks. 
And back then, which is different now, you could play for two countries under under um, res, dual residency. If he if he had lived in the country for three years, he then became eligible to be selected for the Wallabies. So he captained the Springboks in 1994, but then he went to the World Cup with the Wallabies in 1999. So whenever I went back to, I had two years with Tian, and Tian was much older, well, considerably older than me when I was playing. Um, and so I played with him at the back end of his career. And we went back to Cape Town where he was the Wally Lewis, uh, Gary Ablett, you know, Andrew Johns equivalent of rugby. It was unbelievable how, how recognised he was wherever he went. And I remember as a young guy sitting there with him saying to him, how do you manage all these people? How do you manage all these strangers coming up and invading your space and throwing things at you for you to sign and do all that stuff? And he taught me a really interesting lesson and it was just that he said, you have to manage the time. He said, but you cannot be rude because he said, if you have to appreciate that these people are who exactly who you were at one point where you wanted to come and talk to someone. And he said, imagine if you get to meet the person you've always wanted to meet for 10, 20, 30 seconds. And he said, you have such high expectations of when you do it. And that 30 second experience isn't what you imagine it to be. You walk away so disappointed. And he said, I always work very hard on making sure I acknowledge whoever acknowledges me. Um, I give them time, but he said, I always can manage the time. And he said, so that to me was like, okay, well, that's, that's, pre that's pretty interesting. And then I never appreciated truly how you could do that until it started to happen to me. And it doesn't happen to me that often, but I have been out with some mates some nights where complete strangers will come up and they will have no appreciation of the personal time they're taking or the personal space they're invading but I can manage them. But it's funny watching my mates just go, tell them to get, you know, get Nick, tell them to go away. I said, no, 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 you can't, you can't be rude. You just can't because... That will be their memory of Brendan Cannon. Exactly, exactly. So I don't look anything like I used to when I played. I've probably put on a little bit of weight. I do say to my kids that I'm allergic to uh, air these days, <laughs> a very rare, very rare condition that's looking for a cure. Um, uh, but... In some ways, it, there is an element of it being nice if you go somewhere that people, someone says, you know, I remember you, but I don't get disappointed if ever I go, no one knows who I am. Actually, I think all of us at some point like to be, like to be Mr. No One. <laughs> it must have been so interesting through your career to, to start to notice people noticing you more often. <laughs> and, and then even, I guess, another dynamic to that would be hanging out the Wallabies and seeing that there are other guys in the squad who are even more recognised and, <laughs> and grab a whole lot more of the attention. Who in your career was the most hassled by the public? Oh, <laughs> hassled. I'd probably, hassled's probably a negative term. I'd probably say someone who got the most interest. So I, I played with, like, Wendell Saylor. I played with Lottie Dekiri. Guys like that, that literally wherever they went, you know, they were um, shown a lot of interest by members of the public and male or female and families and kids and everything. George Gregan, um, I played with him all the way through from under-19s with the, with the junior Wallabies um, to the Wallabies. And it was always a challenge for those guys um, in the sense that everywhere they went, they were followed by and approached by just members of the public that wanted to have their photo with them and all that stuff, which is a beautiful thing. Like, it really is. Who, who would ever think growing up as a little boy that your life would be of such interest to you know, other people and complete strangers? But what professional sport has done is that it's taken rugby you know, into people's homes, 
in a far greater scale than what it ever was. So, you know, there probably is a far greater scale of recognition now because of the the time that these guys are on TV frequently. And some of them, if you know, some of them there might be four or five players in Australia, rugby wise, that get to do all the marketing and the sponsorship and get to feature in the AAU branding. So there's some that are more recognisable than others. And it's and it is a nice experience when you meet um, someone who you've grown up and you've watched. I get as excited when I go and meet a fellow from another sporting code or an AFL player who I've watched on TV. I have that same sense of nervousness in my stomach and you know that sweaty palm, and I walk away almost like with the clammy throat, thinking, "I just met such and such." Like that's so. I don't think any of us are immune to it, and we all get as excited as everyone. But what I do try and do and appreciate is you've just got to treat people with decency and you know, treat everyone the same way that you would hope that you would be treated and I think that's a pretty simple philosophy to work yourself through life and if if you do it like that and you manage it that way you know I hope that most people that meet me uh, aren't disappointed in uh, who the person that they think I might be but at least they hopefully can appreciate that I've been considerate to them and given them some respectful time. And how do the teammates, how did you as Wallaby teammates react when, when Lottie Takiri and Wendell Saylor and George Gregan were getting this massive attention? Is it, a, is it an immature boys kind of ribbing or do you band together in, in some way, try and protect them from that and, and help them out through it? Uh, a complete mixture of both and a really good summation of how, how it would be. You do get protective of one another uh, when, you, when you travel the world and the only way you can perform well as a group is to stand together as one. And we would always, uh, when you'd go away, socially you'd go out to dinner and stuff. We wouldn't go out as a pack. That just would be too intimidating. It wouldn't be feasible forever wherever we were going. So you'd end up having forming little subgroups within groups. And if you were <laughs> out going out to dinner with a George Grigg or a Wendell Saylor, you would, you would protect those guys. Um, and that would merely be uh, you would... You would entertain whoever they were talking to, but you wouldn't allow them to be. You know, there's a borderline, there's a fine line between someone taking time and then someone taking too much time, which then borders on you know, harassing someone. So it didn't happen that often, but but we also used to take the you know the proverbial piss out of them um, for the attention that they were receiving, and some of it was not so much from the male variety, but more so from the female variety, and even school kids and stuff. So wherever they went, there was always someone willing to talk to them and, and wanting to talk to them, which was quite amusing. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. So in 2000, you moved from Queensland to the enemy and became a New South Wales Waratah. For a boy who grew up in Queensland and supported the Maroons through State of Origin, how was that as a move? Was it strictly a professional decision by that stage in your career? Yeah, like it was a really interesting one and it was one that uh, I didn't make lightly. I think nowadays it's it's more common an occurrence of players to change between states and I think traditionalists like my father find professional the professionalism of rugby has diluted, you know, I suppose the the the, uh, the state-based um, you know, uh, belief that it was Queensland versus New South Wales. Well, whereas now you've got players from different origins. You've got too many Queenslanders playing for New South Wales. So how can they call themselves New South Wales? Well, professionally, it's a team. It's a it's a brand. It's a market. Um, it's not traditionally New South Wales per se. So that happens far too often. Not far too. It's more common occurrence now. When I did it, 
um, I followed Jason Little down, which probably was safer for me because he caught more heat for going than I did. And the reason that I did it, I'd had six years with Queensland and I'd crossed over from amateur to professionalism. Uh, I had been married in that time and I was earning a level of income that was probably, you know, quite reasonable considering um, what my skill set was in comparison to my friends. But then I also started to question because I wasn't a starting player for Queensland. I was predominantly a reserve. I got periods of time in games and I got maybe one or two starts here and there, but I wasn't a fixed starter. I was a, I was a reserve. So at the end, it was interesting and it was one of those sliding door moments that at the start of 1999, 1999 um, I in my mind had figured that that was probably going to be my last year as a player and that I had really given it a good crack. I'd had a discussion with my wife and I thought, I'll give this year a really good shake, but if things don't change this year, um, I'll probably go on and do other things because I really do need to start thinking about my long-term viability as a husband, as a father, and as a contributor to society, uh, rather than being a sporting jock chasing his dreams you know, foolishly around the world. And so around that time, my former Australian under-21 coach, a guy called Ian Kennedy, said to, rang me and said to me, I'm going to apply for the New South Wales coach's job. And he said, what we do is, as an applicant is we basically put a package together to say, this is who we propose we will bring on board. And he said, I want you to be one of the players I nominate. Would you be happy to do that? I said, I'd be happy to. He said, so if I get the job, I want you to come. I said, okay, would you do that? I said, yeah, I'll do that. He ended up getting the job, which then activated me into thinking, okay, a new start, a fresh change. Um, I went to Sydney on the belief that um, I was given a bigger opportunity and probably a fairer playing field for my position than what I had been exposed to in Queensland. And what happened when I went to New South Wales that I went from being the previous six years with Queensland, I ended up playing 34 games for Queensland. Maybe five or six of that 34 were starting games and the balance of that were made up of two, three, five, seven, 15 minute blocks in games, which when you're a player, you want to play. You don't want to be a reserve. You don't want to be on the outside. You want to be contributing. And even if you got into a game for one or two minutes, you, you didn't feel you could do much in that time. So unless it was a big chunk of time, you felt a little bit dissatisfied in your own contribution. So I went from playing very sporadically and getting minimal exposure with Queensland to New South Wales. I played every consecutive Super Rugby game for five years from the previous year where I was getting sporadic minutes here and there in tests. So I ended up playing 72 consecutive Waratah Super Rugby games for them. I ended up playing for the Wallabies from the Waratahs. The club side I was playing for in Sydney, Sydney University, I helped them win their first rugby premiership in 26 years. So the shift in how amazing my rugby experience became when I went to New South Wales was, 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 was evident. You know, all my rugby dreams came true. And like I said before, as a player, you want to play. Um, I also appreciate that at times you have to persevere and you may not be the preferred person at that time, but when it was happening year after year with Queensland, six years of it, it did start to make me question as to who I was as a player per se. So it was really interesting. If, if the, my former coach didn't become the coach of the Waratahs, I would never have played for the Wallabies. I would have retired, walked away. I still would have been really happy uh, with everything that I'd achieved and pretty happy with the life that I'd uh, gone on to work through with sport. But sliding door moments happen and um, that was mine. So going to the Waratahs was 
my you know my my rugby nova it was my dream come true so so in new south wales you played under coach ian kennedy who who lured you down there with mm-hmm. the prospect of a starting position changed your career best move you made so you you turned your back on maroon and 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 went to the enemy then you played under Bob Dwyer yep. there in New South Wales and then eventually Ewan McKenzie. Tell me about those three coaches. What did you learn from those guys? How different were they? How did they go about things? What lessons did you take away? Well, Bob Dwyer was, I mean, he's an icon of Australian rugby because he coached, obviously, the 1991 World Cup winning Wallaby side. Um, he was part of the crew that won the Bledisloe Cup in 1986. Um, and he, you know, he for an amateur coach, changed the way in which we perceived rugby as a brand in Australia. We got Bob at the very, very back end of his rugby career as a coach, and he, I wouldn't say he was the, he was overly structured as a coach. He was um, he was very loose in terms of how he wanted to go about structuring a day. Um, most ways, like looking back now, I don't think he even knew what he was doing when he came to training some days. But one thing I loved about Bob. And to this day, when I see him, I still get excited about it, is his passion was just so infectious. Um, the way games are played now, you get 10 minutes at half time, and you know, in a professional sense, what happens is everyone goes in, you go to the toilet, all that type of stuff, you have your first minute of that is allocated for you, for you to do whatever you want. Then you come back, the forwards will sit together for three minutes, the backs will sit together for three minutes, then the team will come together for two minutes, then at the end the coach will speak. Well, Bob sometimes would use that whole 10 minutes and sit us all down and would spray us and peel, the paint would be peeling off the wall. And he'd have white saliva gathering in the corner of each of his mouth and we'd all be looking at each other and he'd be going purple, his blood pressure would be going through the roof. And it'd be like one of those Seinfeld episodes where he was like, just yada, like, it was like yada, yada, yada. Everything he was saying was probably really relevant, but it just became white noise after a while. But his passion was just so infectious. And I remember you know, after the after some of the games where the halftime speech he'd gone absolutely berserk. One of us would say to the other, "I thought Bob was going to have a heart attack at halftime." He said, "Yeah." He said, "Would you have given him mouth to mouth?" And someone said, "Not with all the white saliva in the corner of his mouth." So he could have died in the dressing room at halftime, but we had to leave him. But he was so passionate about it, and he his his fundamental philosophy at rugby was have a go. He hates kicking in rugby. Because he said, if, if, if you're kicking the ball away, he said, you cannot score a try, you cannot win the game, but you're giving the opposition many opportunities to do it. So he said, why kick it away? And then we had Ewan McKenzie, um, who came in after being an assistant coach at the Wallabies. And the Ewan McKenzie that I had with the Waratahs was an emerging coach. Um, Queensland had him, and he obviously achieved great success with Queensland. But they inherited a coach that had probably become a lot more advanced and, and confident in his ability uh, when he came to Queensland. He had been challenged as an assistant coach with Eddie Jones when he became the Waratah coach. And Eddie Jones was a very, very tough taskmaster. And we as players within the Wallaby side, I mean, everyone was fearful of Eddie. Um, fearful in the sense that uh, you were always cautious about how you approach training, cautious in a game as to not wanting to do something instinctively but you know, fearful of making a mistake because you'd get the wrath of Eddie Jones. And so he, he worked all his coaching staff like 18 hours a day, that type of stuff. So he created this environment which was you know, of, of high moral principle, high ethics, but work, 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 work. 
So when Ewan McKenzie came to the Waratahs the first year we had him, a group of us had been exposed to him having been, I suppose, this berated individual as a coach. And so <laughs> Eddie Jones, it was like... Um, <laughs> Eddie Jones is about three foot six and Ewan McKenzie's six foot five and eight foot wide. But you could see and you could sense with Ewan McKenzie around Eddie Jones, he made him nervous. So you could see he had developed, you know, he, I don't know, he just made him probably question his ability as a coach. Ewan McKenzie is a fantastic coach, but I think when we got him at the Waratahs in the first year or two, he was emerging as a coach, as we all do. You know, he still very much had the L plates on. But one thing that he did and he introduced at the Waratahs, and the Waratahs have been, I suppose, the most marketed brand in Australian rugby. They're the oldest brand in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, 1888 or something is when they were established. Um, But they are the most over-resourced, but up until recently, um, the least successful team in Australian rugby history. When I went from the Reds to the Waratahs, they sat me down when it got close to the interstate game because Queensland had had an overwhelming success against New South Wales in that game. Um, historically and they said what is it that they do differently how do they approach that game differently and I said I only have to look at what you guys have got here and and even from a resources perspective Queensland had next to nothing Queensland scrapped and fought for you know a barbell and a weight just because resources were pretty tight I went to Sydney and it was like the Versace Palazzi resort like you had the best of everything you wanted for nothing everyone drove beautiful cars everyone lived in this beautiful city and so I looked at it and I thought culturally it was evident to me that if you have too, too much of something, it doesn't make you appreciate what you don't have. You're not hungry. You're not hungry. And so every year that, that to me was what was the evident, uh, the fundamental difference between the two states. And so I try, tried to get that to change, which over time we managed to. But one thing you and Mackenzie changed about the Waratahs in my time there was we did a peer review. And it was, it was confronting. And we had uh, a, a gentleman brought in uh, called Ray McLean who had done the Bloods campaign with the Sydney Swans. So the Sydney Swans, the AFL team, they talk about this culture of Bloods, about standing together as one. So he came in and did this with us. And it was like having your whole work division basically write down three points. So you as an individual had to leave the room and write down three things. First thing was, what would you change about yourself? Second thing was, what would you do differently? And the third thing would, was what would, you, what would you keep the same? So you're doing that and then your group of peers are doing the same. So we came back in and it started off, everyone was a bit fluffy about it. So Chris Whitaker, who was the captain at the time, he was the first one that came in and his first thing was, this is what I think I should be like, blah, 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 blah. And then the guy goes, okay, next group, get up. What do you think Chris, about Chris Whitaker? He's a really nice bloke. Okay, he goes, nice doesn't cut it. He goes, you guys are being so fluffy about this that the only way this is going to work is that if you buy into it. And he said, I will not allow this to continue if we're not going to be real and honest. He said, honesty, as confronting as it is, is the only element of what will allow change to take place. He said, everyone in this room is a good bloke. We know that. So no one else can say that today. But tell us what about him as a person you like. Tell us what about him you don't like. Tell us what about him you think he could be better at and that's what will make us do the change. So some of that changed everything and so some of, some of the peer reviews were brutal because it was a forum with which guys got to basically say, and I don't think you really come to work with the right attitude. I think you're 
interests are elsewhere. So if you really don't want to be here, like just piss off because you're wasting our time, you're wasting your time. And what happened at the end of that year was we made the Super Rugby final for the first time in the Waratahs history. So you look at if you change culture and culture underpins all the energy and the efficiency of an organisation, if you change culture, it changes outcome. And what we had failed to do in previous years is that we had been on a roundabout, of, a cultural roundabout of partial acceptance that we needed to change, we'd make subtle change, but we wouldn't make the change that was really fundamentally required for us to advance as, a, as an organisation. So Ewan McKenzie's legacy at the Waratahs was that he changed the culture and he changed the culture and put it on, set it on a new course that ended up with them becoming you know, successful like they have been recently. Does winning produce a healthy culture or does a healthy culture produce wins? I think a healthy culture produces wins because if you're winning without not having a good culture, it's like walking down the footpath and having cracks everywhere. Winning glosses over everything. Um, winning makes going to work fun. Winning makes going to work enjoyable. But if, if you're winning and you're winning easy and you're doing it without structure and just through you know, freakish ability within the team, you don't really appreciate... I suppose, what the team's capacity or capabilities are. But if you're winning through culture and you're winning through structured output and a, a, a structured way of approaching training, you can measure how you've got there because you know exactly the path you've taken. So I always used to love the hard wins. And sometimes you learn more out of your losses than you do your wins because a loss makes you reflect upon what went wrong. Well, what did we do well? Yeah, yeah, we played pretty well. But if we played that well, we should have won. So why did we lose? So then you look at what you didn't do as a group and find out how you can make that better. So sometimes losses were far more rewarding as a player um, in terms of what you got out of it. It wasn't the feeling because you love to win. Everyone loves to win. But sometimes you learn, you learn less. Sorry, you, yeah, you learn more from your losses than you do your wins. Speaking of healthy team cultures, you made your Wallaby debut in 2001. You made your debut against the touring British Lions. That must have been a fabulous experience. You came in to an iconic team in, in modern Australian rugby. John Eels was the captain. Uh, Rod McQueen was the coach. It was a star-studded side. They were World Cup holders. They'd won the Bledisloe Cup the year before. What was it like to walk into that team? It was pretty intimidating because they were a team of superstars and you know they had achieved an enormous amount and I think I played 90 seconds in the um, uh, in the second test against the British and Irish Lions in Melbourne and you know it was an amazing experience. I remember sitting at home on the first test watching the game with a group of friends when they played at the Gabba and that was probably to me a real change in the way in which teams supported the Australian Wallabies. Sorry, our supporters supported the team because the British and Irish Lions supporters brought that you know um, unbelievable redness to, to Brisbane, the ability to sing and carry on and bring culture and class and everything to it all. Changed the way in which rugby was supported as a game. So to go to Melbourne uh, after Jeremy Paul had injured his knee in the first test and be a part of it was was, was quite amazing. It really was. And... I look back upon that and you know the path which or the direction that that set me upon with the Wallabies was you know, an interesting one because I came in when the team had been so successful and they had so many had won so many cups and titles and everything and in my time um, we effectively gave everything we gave everything back where you know we went to the Coffs Harbour where the Wallaby base camp was 
And when, when you arrived in Coffs Harbour the, at the luggage carousel, it said, welcome to Coffs Harbour, home of the Qantas Wallabies, uh, home of the William Wurbellis Cup, which is the World Cup, home of the Tri-Nations Cup, home, you know, home of all, effectively, every um, piece of silverware in world rugby the Wallabies had. And by the time I left, all it said was, welcome to Coffs Harbour, home of the Wallabies. Everything had gone. Every time we came back from a tour, there was the sign writer there scrubbing something out to change it all. And he was he got the most work out of anyone at Coffs Harbour in three years. But um, you know, it was it was a really interesting time, and it was a great experience to come into a side that had um, so much experience and had done so much. But then also it was a period of transition because you had a lot of stalwarts and amazing players for the Wallabies retire, and then go on and, and, and do other things outside of sport. So, interesting period. For the majority of your time with the Wallabies, Eddie Jones was the coach. He's someone who fascinates me because he's obviously a leader with a very clear style. You described before how he turned some people off, he made some people nervous by that style. Yet at the same time, he, he's had an enormous amount of successes in, in his career. Most recently, we've seen him turn Japan into a into an entertainment machine. They, they knocked off the Springbok in the World Cup. He had them playing passionate, brave rugby, and England have just picked him up. In your time, uh, you went all the way to a World Cup final, which you lost in extra time. You beat the All Blacks as massive underdogs in the semifinals. So it's hard to get my head around the, the legacy of, of Eddie Jones in rugby because he seems to have turned a lot of people off, but at the same time continues to have so much success. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy, Eddie. He, um, he challenged me in ways that I'd never ever been challenged before. And the way to explain that would be uh, he, he really, he, he made, he, he probably, he challenged me to the extent that he made me probably get to the point where I really questioned what I wanted to do with rugby. You know, I started to probably not respond overly positively to some of the environments that he was creating where I didn't feel like it was relaxed. It was quite tense when you'd go to training. He was not a guy that relaxed a lot, like he was such a workaholic. So that flowed on to his support staff or his assistant coaches. So there was always a bit of a tension in the team, looking back at it um, when, when I was involved with him. And it came down to one point where we had a massive argument on tour and he questioned me about, he didn't think I really valued the, the ability or the capacity to play for the Wallabies. Got, it got pretty brutal and it got pretty frank and um, I came away from that meeting because the challenge you have as a professional player you know, is you've got to do everything you can to get on with the coach because the coach is he's, he's the master of your destiny. He's the HR manager. He is and if you don't get on with the coach, no matter how good a player you are and if the coach doesn't want to pick you uh, and you have an issue with him, he won't and you're locked in for two to three years of a contract for that to happen so you don't have the flexibility of being able to resign and then go and start work somewhere else. You have to do what you can for that duration of your contract. So you're always playing a little bit of a deceitful game where you're trying to both manipulate each other to get the best out of each other. Um, And you can't be brutally honest with each other because honesty ain't going to cut it, but it does at some some point. So he had made me feel like I didn't want to play rugby anymore. And that's a terrible thing to say, and that's not saying that what he was doing was, was considerably bad, but he, he just made me doubt myself too much because his approach was so, um, was so full on that there was not an element of relaxation about what you were doing. And, 
And I probably, it just, it didn't work for me what he was doing. It worked for some, and his approach was very much across the board. It wasn't individualised, which is what I've learnt from all the different coaches I've gone through is those that had the most adaptable approach uh, and considered everyone else's variance of personality and skill sets were the ones that got the most out of their group. But those that had a blanket policy, you know, you scratch the surface a little bit, a little bit uh, sort of you know, rose to the top, but most of it sank because people don't respond if they're not going to be tickled in the right way, so per that, se. That's such a great point. And what we hear come out of Wayne Bennett time after time is, is that ability to be a different leader to the different characters who are in the group. So in a way, has Eddie Jones had enormous success as a coach despite his style? <laughs> um, well, I think you look at his, his style probably is responds to particular playing groups. He had great success when, when I was with the Wallabies. Um, you know, we achieved that in the 2003 World Cup. We made the final. You don't do that by chance. You do that through planning, good strategy and good ability. And, you know, he, he's been recognised with what he did with Japan at the recent World Cup. I mean, they beat South Africa in the pool game, which was just unbelievable. And he will go on and do, you know, very, very good things with England. You will know within a short matter of time whether Eddie Jones is going to succeed or fail in England, but he's there for the long haul. And if you don't buy into what he wants to do, well, you're not going to be a part of his crusade. So he pushed me to the point where at the end of this tour, he questioned me as to whether or not he, th he thought I really appreciated playing for the Wallabies. You know, and, and as a player or anyone, you know, when someone questions that you don't really appreciate, I don't think you really appreciate it. You know, it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. So... I went and saw him outside of the tour at the end of 2004, 2002, and we had a really frank discussion. You know, it, he had pushed me to the point where I'd probably needed to stand up as a man and as a player and say, you're the coach. And this is basically what I said to him. I said, you're the coach. I'm a player. I want to play for the Wallabies. To do that, we have to get along. But for me to get along with you, tell me what your expectations are and I'll go away and do what I can to try and match it. Well, it must have worked out pretty well because by 2003, you were the starting hooker. You mentioned before that you got your first test jersey because Jeremy Paul was injured. Though by the time the World Cup rolled around, you were starting in the hooking position and Jeremy Paul was coming on in the 57th minute, for example, in the uh, semi-final. Tell me about that dynamic between you and Jeremy Paul. I, I remember that as a fan, watching the tussle between you two for the starting spot. How does that affect two men who travel together and room together perhaps and catch buses together yeah well so that'll it'll tie in nicely with the eddie jones situation where you know at the end of that year eddie jones said to me well you need to go away and come back and be and, and clearly define yourself in australia as the best at that and he said jeremy does things that you can't do and jeremy does things that many players can't do so jeremy was very good in his mobility and very good at his um you know uh, innate ability to pop up on the right spot on the field and could get around and do things that I could only dream of in my um, when I had my eyes closed. So he said, don't try and be Jeremy, try and be Brennan Cannon and do what defines you uh, as, a, as a player. And he said, so I think your scrum and line out, I think your set piece is has the potential to be the best in Australia. He said, that's something that Jeremy probably will never have the capacity to get to like you, but Jeremy does things that you can't do. So you make sure you get that really, really good and and everything else should hopefully fall into place and that's what that's what i did do i went away and i threw so many line out throws at the end of every day or during each day 
uh, I went and saw a sports psychologist um, to allow myself to declutter my mind and to simplify many elements of how I approached mentally, the way I was playing. And that, to me at the time, I struggled with even acknowledging or admitting to myself that I needed to see a sports psych. And I quickly realised that they're more of an enabler than they are an inhibitor. And he allowed me to declutter my mind just with very simple frameworks and philosophies of simple things that I, over time, had completely allowed myself to become paralysed with. And so long and short of it was anything that I could control, that I had direct influence over, um, that was all I had to worry about. And everything else that I had no direct control over, I couldn't worry about because I had no influence on it. So everything worked out exceptionally well. I I did everything that um, Eddie had, I suppose, tickled me and said I needed to do. And, yeah, 2003 was one of those years from... You know, out of the blue for me, and and, and you look, I look back at it, and I know all the different trigger points that allowed that outcome to be achieved. Rugby is such a team game, and and I guess in some ways you were a beneficiary of the fact that at that time we had such a strong back row, because perhaps if our back row wasn't as strong, Eddie might have decided he needed some of Jeremy Paul's work around the field more so than your great line-out throwing and scrummaging. Is is that the case? So did you benefit from that back row? I, I do think so, and I think also um, Jeremy and I benefited from the fact that what we both did bring to a team w- was was quite different in our approach. And if we were the same, sameness doesn't really work. You need that subtlety of difference. And so, what I wasn't able to give the team, he was able to, and vice versa. So, you know, um, I tended to start more of the games uh, when Jeremy and I were playing than than he did, because his ability to probably be mobile and have an influence on a game worked really well when there was a fatigue factor there so I was there for the early gunfire uh, and then he came on when um, the razzle dazzle was required. Unfortunately we're going to have to wrap up really soon I've got a couple of questions left but I know this they need this room Uh, I could talk to you literally for days you're fabulous at this Brennan by the way this has been a a fantastic chat now but I'm gonna but you're not gonna like me in a minute because I'm gonna ask you a question that you might not enjoy you were part of that team that won the semi-final against the All Blacks in 2003. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that's in your highlight package as a career. And then the very next week, you lost the final in extra time. You were sitting on the bench. You must have felt helpless. And then I think about your time at New South Wales Waratahs. You lost two semi-finals and, and one final of Super Rugby. For everything that you've achieved, the 47 test caps you've got, do you look back at those times and, and have regrets about your career or does the simple fact that you were a professional player more than make up for those moments? I don't think it's as simple as that. I think, you know, I don't look at the fact that I got to live a particular journey that was fundamentally different to anyone else. I look at it that I was able to, change, to, I was able to chase something that I was passionate about. Um, the byproduct of it that I actually generously was paid to do it I had lived a life where I'd done it for free. I loved the journey of rugby. I loved the um, the fundamentals and the variables associated with the training approach to rugby, the journey of a season, targeting key games that you're going to go for. And out of all the games, yes, it would have been lovely to have had an experience where you look at some players' careers or some athletes' careers and you think that's just unbelievable that they've been able to do what they have and achieve everything that they have. Some people are really lucky. Some people are just in that perfect little window of time where everything happens for that particular team. But I really like, in many ways, the lessons that I learnt out of rugby through 
the disappointments. It would have been really nice to have won all those major games. It would have been really nice to be known as a world champion winning Wallaby. Um, it would have been really nice to have been known as, you know, um, Tri-Nations Cup Wallabies or the Super Rugby Champions for the Waratahs. But does that diminish or take away from what I feel I've taken out of that my time in that jersey? No. What I really try and instill to guys that I talk to is every time I got to put on that cloth of the particular team that I represented, um, people talk about loyalty in work and people talk about loyalty in teams. And my philosophy is that first and foremost, you've got to be loyal to yourself. Because if you're loyal to yourself, you will give whatever you can for that time of wherever you're committed to, you'll give your best. I never for once in when I played wanted anyone to question my loyalty. But my loyalty did get questioned when I left Queensland to go to New South Wales. But I look at that and go, well, that to a degree might be true. But for one minute, could you question when I was with Queensland that I didn't put in, that I didn't give my all at training? My Queensland opportunity didn't work out the way that I had hoped or had wanted it to. And that happens in life. But my loyalty to myself and my family was what drove me to go to New South Wales. And so every time I got to put on you know, the, the sacred cloth or whatever team I played in, I always approached it and thought, I have to make my minutes matter. Because if my minutes don't matter, then what's the legacy that I'm going to leave for this jersey? Because the jersey that I'm playing in is not mine forever. It's a number that I put on my back that I effectively am the guardian for the next player to come through. And what's the legacy that I want to leave for that player to come through? Do I want him to aspire to be as good, if not better than me? Or do I want him to not be proud of the jersey he's about to put on because of who's worn it before him? So I looked at it and I love the tradition of rugby and I love the tradition of around rugby and sport. And so for me to have lived a life as a sportsman um, and to have got paid for it, very, very fortunate. To have crossed over from amateurism to professionalism, extremely fortunate because I took amateur values with me to the professional era. Guys these days only know it as professionalism, so there's a sadness for me that they don't get to appreciate what I have. The life lessons I've taken out of it have been profound and continue to be, and you often draw upon your, your sporting experiences to deal with situations or adapt to situations in, in life. A lot of people say to me, what do you miss? Well, I don't. there's elements of it that I miss. I, evidently what I would miss is is the jubilation of that that feeling of adrenaline standing in front of a stadium arm in arm with 23 guys getting to sing that you know amazing experience of having your national anthem sung on your behalf with you being the focus for it that'll never be replaced and that's naive to think that you can ever find something that'll substitute that but life evolves life moves on and you know uh, I'm always forward with my approach these days I don't really like to look back too much because you sort of then become a bit stuck in the mud. So, yes, it would have been amazing to have won every single game in my sporting career and to have been crowned the king of the world and here are the kings to heaven and the kings to the keys to the kingdom. But you learn nothing if everything's, if everything's golden. I have four rapid-fire questions to finish up with so we can get to know the inherent Brendan Cannon a little bit more. <laughs> Question number one. Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to, an intimate dinner with your closest friends or a big party with lots of people you know? An intimate dinner with closest friends because I think um, my, my simple philosophy in life is treasuring what matters the most. And to me, you know, um, 
you can't be friends with everyone. You, there's only so much of Brendan Cannon that I can give to people and vice versa. And so an intimate dinner with a core group of friends who, who you know well and they make you feel good about yourself and there's a happiness and a warmth about it. I mean, how could you go wrong? Question number two. Are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? <laughs> it's not a lot of room for scope there. Um, I like structure. I like the detail, but I don't want to over, over, overly complicate things by getting too drawn into the detail. You can spin your wheels a little bit at times if you get bogged down in the detail. So I like to probably jump the mud puddles in the quicksand and carry with me the lightest bag possible to get to the end of the bridge without getting weighed down in the middle worrying about complicating the circumstance. And how about the way you make decisions? Are you a slave to rational thought or do you make decisions based on emotion? You can't make decisions based on emotion because it, it makes you completely irrational. <laughs> it's interesting, if I, if, I, <laughs> if I get something given to me that, is, that has, an, has an a highly emotive reaction from myself, I won't deal with it directly at that time. Uh, I'll probably make a couple of different nominations to it and I'll sit on it. I'll always try and sleep on something and then contemplate it the next day because you know, emotion is great to have but emotion clouds your judgment because it overrides and neutralises any sense of rationale that you should have. And I always try and, if you can, like get a very small combination of the two but more heavily weighted towards a rational approach. So you work with people that are highly emotive and they stand out like they're the lighthouse keeper. You can smell them a mile away or you can hear them a mile away when they're wailing in disbelief at the quarter that something's about to happen. But I think you've got to really clearly try and separate the two because you know, emotion is good to have an element to your life, but you can't let it factor in your decisions in relation to business. And very last question, you're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan the route, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going or do you just get in the car and drive? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm more like the first. I certainly like to know where the destination is and probably have a little bit of an idea as to how long it's going to get, take for us to get there, plus also the way in which we're going to get there. Going, going jumping in the car and getting there when you want, uh, for me, would agitate the hell out of me because I, I would have no idea when it was going to end. So I like structure. Brendan Cannon, this has been an absolute pleasure. I've really appreciated your time. You have been fabulous to talk to. Thank you. Thanks for having me on board. Not a problem. And there you have Brendan Cannon. I hope you found it to be every bit as intriguing as I did. There was something in there for everyone. Rugby heads and sports fans in general got some deeply personal insight into the life of a professional football player. And those of us interested in personal and professional development got some intelligent reflection on leading and being part of a healthy team environment. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from the podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.